Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Every morning there's a halo hanging from the corner of my girlfriend's four-post bed, and she's listening to Stick to Wrestling. I want to thank my friends in the band Sugar Ray for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we will give you a wicked good podcast. I'm aware that there are some really good podcasts out there. We've got competition, but are they wicked good? I'll tell you what, let me ask this gentleman here. Are there any other wicked good podcasts besides Stick to Wrestling? Well, there you have it. The answer is obvious. We are the only wicked good podcast out there. Now, before I continue my conversation with John Boucher about the review of the 1982 Wrestling Observer yearbook poll of the best and the worst of the year, I am going to do a hard plug for our Facebook group. If you go on Facebook, put in the word stick to wrestling, ask to join the group and you will be there. Why? Because not only is it a really cool place to talk wrestling with cool people, if you have a question, something you need to know about wrestling, you'll get the answer. If you just want to talk about the show, you can talk about the show. We are doing, I am doing a fantasy Crockett Cup tag team tournament. Right now, we're in the middle of the 1979 tournament, and pretty soon we're going to be doing the 1991 tournament. That's not enough for you. About 15 years ago, more than that, I was part of a website, not a website, a a message board, and I did fantasy booking on this. And pretty soon, it's already written, so why not publish it one more time? I am going to start posting my fantasy booking of Florida championship wrestling. I believe I started, I did start in the year 1982. So I'm going to start publishing that. You want to join the Facebook group. And with that, we continue our conversation with John Boucher, the Wrestling Observer newsletter, the first one Dave ever put out, reviewing the year of 1982. Here we go. Now, one guy I want to bring up, the worst wrestler I have ever seen. Now, John, you're like me. I think that like when you first start wrestling, you don't know what is like a good match and a bad match. And they start watching and you get an idea of, okay, you know, this guy wins a lot of his matches, but he's not very entertaining versus this guy loses a lot of his matches, but he's good. Like a guy like Johnny Rods, the WWF brought in a guy named Mighty Joe Thunder. Do you remember who he was before he was Mighty Joe Thunder? I don't remember the name. I don't remember the name either, but the only reason he's not in my most washed up is because they brought him in for one taping and they sent him home. He wasn't around long enough. But I mean, you know, in a time where I didn't notice that a guy like Ray Stevens wasn't that good anymore. I didn't notice that, you know, Jimmy Snuka wasn't that great. I noticed that this guy was horrible. I mean, he was way worse than the worst guy I had seen before him. And that says a lot, because in 1982, WWF was not a a work-rate territory. No. And how bad do you have to be to, yeah. I, I mean, to really stand out as, you know, 
just jaw-droppingly bad. The, like I said, the only reason he's not getting my number one is he wasn't around that much. Is there is there anyone else you would like to discuss or someone you want to you know mention? Pedro Morales, like I hate to to agree, but I kind of have to since he was you know Intercontinental Champion for I think the whole year. He was still able. I don't want to say he was still able. You were one was still able to get good matches out of Pedro in 1982, but it was really tough. I think you, uh, you mentioned Adonis. Uh, Morocco could do it. Morocco could get the absolute best out of Pedro. Um, Greg Valentine could also get decent matches out of Pedro, albeit to a lesser degree if the match was a short match. If it was a longer match, and then sort of didn't, didn't work a little trickier. But Morocco and Valentine still good. But overall, I think to have this guy, you know, you're the second highest belt in the, in the territory, this guy for a year, I think... And I always think of him, too, in trying to solve the backland problem like and, and get, you know, you have have Snooka, give Snooka the IC belt when he's a heel. And that sort of sort of solves the backland problem. So you're not pairing off backland and Snooka and having Snooka get the cheers that backland should be getting. I don't know. But I have to agree with Morales here. You know what? And I, I respectfully disagree, and I'll tell you why. And okay. a big part of this, like a lot of my day has been spent preparing for the show mentally and trying to get myself back into my mindset. Like, what would I have said on December 31st, 1982? I honestly did not see Pedro Morales as being washed up. I was never a big <laughs> fan. Um, and I hadn't seen him, anything of him, before he came back to the WWF in 1980. But honestly, I, I never looked at Pedro and said, wow, this guy's washed up. I looked at him as a veteran, obviously, but not, you know, someone like Dominic DiNucci, who when he was in the WWF, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's washed up. Yeah, this guy's so old. Yeah. I mean, I, I grant, yeah. And uh, granted, yeah, when I'm talking, my criticism of Pedro is 2020 me criticizing Pedro. Conversely, like if like if we discuss someone like Ray Stevens, like I disagree, disagree with Ray Stevens because of my personal experience and introduction to Ray, the crippler Stevens being on WWF TV, which, you know, his debut on championship wrestling beats Barry Horowitz, takes him outside, apologizes him on the floor, stretcher job. Next week on all-star wrestling beats Miguel Feliciano, takes him outside after the match, apologizes him on the floor, stretcher job. And for the next month, he's just beating dudes in under two minutes. And then they do the snookle angle, snooker angle, and he pile drives snooker, and he's a bloody mess on the floor. People are throwing soda; it looks awesome. And then snooker shows up on Roger's corner with the, you know, the neck brace and the, you know, and the bandage. I, you know, I thought like I, I legitimately thought that Crippler Ray Stevens crippled people that they'd be in wheelchairs because of this guy. And like you know, he wasn't jacked; he didn't look great. But I just was like, oh, this is this is wrestling. This guy could be a, a scary guy and cripple people. So. A couple of things. I mean, Jimmy Snooker with that neck brace that came up to his eyeballs. I remember yeah. that. And we finally have a Miguel Feliciano reference here on Stick to Wrestling. <laughs> Ring the Miguel bell. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> All right. Most obnoxious personality. I will give you guys a, a spoiler. Mine is one that's not listed here. Number one is Captain Lou Albano by the slimmest of marches. Albano, 23 points. Jimmy Valiant, 22 points. David Crockett, 21 points. Vince McMahon Jr., 20 points. So we've got like four guys that these voters really hate. 
And then next up, Fred Blassie, Gordon Soley, and mm-hmm. Tommy Rich. I don't know what that Gordon Soley one's all about, but uh, John, if you had to vote most obnoxious wrestling personality of 1982, who would you go with? I don't know, this list, this list is a little... I don't get a lot of this list. The rest of the list doesn't make sense to me, except for one guy on here. Jimmy Valiant, I can see. Jimmy Valiant, I thought was obnoxious. But the rest, I don't really think of as obnoxious per se. And if they're being obnoxious, it's, you know, Albano's supposed to be Lou Albano. Um, Albano, Blassie, and the Wiz are supposed to be evil incarnate. If they're a little obnoxious, it's because they're gloating and generally being being evil. Um, I mean, I think a couple of weeks ago on your show, you you guys were talking about Albano not being popular with the the smart fan community. So maybe that's the case here. Just the the smart fans, the guys who are voting, are not fans. And that's a good point. Maybe and, and Vince McMahon, like I'm totally not getting my again my December 1982 brain is totally not getting this. He was just a yeah. TV announcer. We didn't think yeah. I didn't I didn't think he was obnoxious at all. I actually liked Vince on commentary up until, you know, 84 or so. And David Crockett, I I definitely went through a phase where I did not like David Crockett. Now I I like him on commentary, especially on interviews. And I think it's maybe just because nowadays you don't see someone or or hear his his brand of unbridled enthusiasm on wrestling commentary. But I find I find his 1982 observations refreshing. But I could totally see again. 1982 smart fans rolling their eyes at the TV when David Crockett opens his mouth. Yeah, I always thought David Crockett was a little bit obnoxious, <laughs> but he's not my number one. My number one is a write-in. He is someone that I saw fairly recently in 1982 for the first time. I couldn't stand this guy. George Scott would oh. come out. He would be the, the authority figure on yeah. Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, and it was like, you know, Go teach a middle school history <laughs> class. He was just always yelling at the heels, putting his finger in their face. Oh, Sergeant Slaughter always smacked this guy. I think there are good authority figures. Like Jack Tunney was really good. He, you know, not that he shined in his role, but he, he did what he was supposed to do. Like this guy would come out and just start yelling at everybody. I couldn't stand him. Yeah. Yeah. I, could, I, I forgot about George Scott, but yeah. Agree. I, I agree with your right. And the Gordon one, though, I don't get at all. I don't uh, get the Gordon one at all. Uh, I mean, I see, you know, Gordon did eventually sort of coasted on autopilot, but yeah. we're not there. We're not there yet. We're far from there. You know what? As, as a matter of fact, we're getting there because a major turning point, so I understand, with Gordon was he was legitimately injured when Morocco pushed him out of the way or Morocco did whatever he did. Uh, when Ro- when Roddy Piper was turning babyface, he had a legitimate problem with his hip, and supposedly that's what like sent Gordon down the wrong pathway. He was like mm, allegedly messing with booze and pain pills. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's what I heard a long time ago. Oh. All right, best brawler. Oh wow, we've got hold. Well, number one, Bruiser Brody by a mile. Number two, Stan Hansen. Number three, Dusty Rhodes. Number four, Buzz Sawyer. Number five, Jerry Lawler. And honorable mentions go to Dick Murdoch, Terry Funk, Harley Race, Roddy Piper, and Abdullah the Butcher. John, if you had to have a number one, who would you go with? I probably, yeah, you know, Brody. I mean, the award's named after Brody now, isn't it? He's, it, it uh, is, yeah, after he died. Is. Yeah, I'd have to go with, yeah, even if you're not 
a fan of brawling per se. Brody is outstanding at at brawling, and he could draw you into his brawl. That yeah, I'd probably go with him. A lot of the other guys on this list, like I don't, I don't necessarily see them as as brawlers per se. You know, like like Murdoch and Murdoch and Buzz Sawyer. Like they could, yeah, they can they can scrap, but there's so much more to them than that. So I almost feel like just throwing them in as brawlers sort of minimizes their their skill set. I think by calling them brawlers. Okay, all right. I would have gone Jerry Lawler number one. Mm-hmm. He had some really good brawls in 1982. Um, I always, I mean, it's Memphis, so it's it's a brawl territory. Uh, and you know, Jerry Lawler putting on the strap and throwing that punch. I would go. I am a fan of Bruiser Brody, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows. I would go Brody number two. And I, like you said, I mean, Brody could do a lot more than just brawl. But I mean, I would just go Jerry Lawler number one. You, any choice for you on number two? Uh, who do I have number two? I had Stan. I had Stan Hansen at number two. Okay. Some of his matches, you watch them, you just feel badly for the guy. With <laughs> 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 he's beating the tar out of these guys. Like I was re- reading something about him a few years ago, and, and it was on one of the old wrestling classics message board, and it was the, the guy I was posting was a, a driver for Crockett or something, and he would drive around. He was in charge of Vader's mask, so he would drive around. Vader's mask, Vader, and Stan Hansen. Occasionally, the Iron Sheik would also join them, and they would. This is when Vader and Hansen were, were feuding, so they have to pick up Stan like a couple towns over because it was still they were still kayfabe days. Yeah. And they'd go to the liquor store. They'd each get a case of beer. They get a package of ice for the beer, and then Stan would get some ice, and then Vader would get some ice for for their bodies because they would just beat the crap out of each other that now that's a cool story when you say the mask do you mean like the the thing you wore in the ring or that giant like uh shoulder pads thing oh yeah the shoulder pad thing with the the steam yeah the guy was in charge of like maintaining the mask and like making sure like the remote control to shoot the steam that worked yeah (laughs) i want that job (laughs) (laughs) all right now i've never oh i have my own definition of this but it probably varies the next one is best scientific wrestler Number one is Tiger Mask. Uh, tied for number two is Steve Wright and Bob Backlund. Number three is Dory Funk Jr. No, uh, excuse me, number four is Dory Funk Jr. Number five is Ted DiBiase. And honorable mentions go to Jim Brunzel, Billy Robinson, Jack Briscoe, Mil Mascaris, and Les Thornton. John, what would be your definition of, of best or, or definition of scientific wrestler? I got to say, um, uh, me, again, apologize for my, my Northeast bias, but you know, a guy like Bob Backlund, a guy like Bob Backlund, a guy like Dory Funk, a guy like Billy Robinson and, and uh, you know, Steve Wright, um, those guys, the, the technician. Um, I don't see Tiger Mask yeah. as a scientific wrestler. I don't see him, you know, I see him as, you know, as agile or as we impressive. I don't see him as scientific though. Same here. Yeah. I yeah, I mean not not to minimize his his talent whatsoever, but I don't see him as the best scientist. I mean, you know, maybe just be maybe a uh the, the you know, issue of nomenclature in nineteen eighty two. We don't really have a name for what Tiger Mask <laughs> we don't know how yeah. to refer to him yet. That might be the be the problem. But I would definitely see, you know, guys like, you know, Backland and Steve Wright, Dory Funk, uh and Billy Robinson ahead of him, even Brunzel. 
on this list? I would go scientific wrestler doing this. A wrestler who can put on a really good match without using high spots, or at least not using a ton of high spots. And with that, to me, that's Jack Briscoe, even in 1982. Mm. I mean, Jack did not do, you know, suplexes. He didn't do a lot of tosses, but his matches were really good because he knew what he was doing in that ring. Yeah, agree. agree. My number two would be Les Thornton, who I have grown to appreciate more and more over the years. Once again, a guy who didn't need to do a lot of flippy stuff in order to have a good match. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, another one, he's another, like for me also, he'd also has grown on me over the years for me. He was really the archetypal early eighties, junior heavyweight guy. And also the typical, you know, the British mat technician guy, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, he was the first British guy really because of Georgia TV, even before Billy Robinson, but he, yeah, he fills, he fills this role perfectly and yeah like you said i've learned to appreciate him more and more over the years yeah i am a little bit embarrassed but i will confess that when i first saw les thornton on florida tv i saw him a little bit in world class and i saw him in in georgia and i was like this guy's boring and he is anything but boring i have i've grown to genuinely like that style not like in a fake you know oh i'm so smart i like this like no this is fun to watch yeah you know a lot yeah I, i i i Felt the same the same way seeing him on Georgia, and then almost immediately after I started seeing him on Georgia with you know some regularity, the, the WWF buyout happened. So then he's wrestling in the WWF in 1984, and it just this is not you know not he was not a fit at all. But then when later on you go back and you're like oh wow this is this is really fun. And then, yeah. All right, most agile wrestler. And again, not knocking the voters, but you can tell not everyone had a VCR by this point because <laughs> this, I mean, and I want to be fair, you know, I got, I've had 30, what, seven years to go over this stuff. These guys did not. So number one is Tiger Mask and by a pretty good margin. Number two yes. is Jimmy Snuka. And there's a big gap between two and three. Dos Karras gets number three. Mil Mascaris is number four. Chavo Guerrero is number five, and Rocky Johnson gets an honorable mention. John, what's going on here? <laughs> I don't know. Who do, who, do you, who, do you, who do you have as your most agile? I'm very curious. Oh, I mean, it's Tiger Mask by a mile. But what blows yeah. me away is Jimmy Snooker got seven first-place votes. What are you guys watching? Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, honestly, my, I have to, my, my one write-in here, again, uh, shout-out to the High Flyers. I'm going to add Jim Brunzel. I agree 100%. He was like my number one guy who, how does someone say that Jimmy Snook is more agile than Jim Brunzel? I mean, obviously, if you don't get the tapes, if you don't get the TV, there's nothing you can do. So like I said, I'm not knocking what these guys said 37 years ago. But still, I mean, even, I could have told you in 1982, yeah, Snook has got that one big move and he kind of jumps over the guy, but he's not terribly agile. Yeah, I mean, he has, you know, he has the go-to, the go-to spots and that's, that's really it. And you know, with Mill Mascaris too, it's like, uh, he, I hate to, uh, I hate to, I don't, I hate to be controversial and negative, but he, to me, looked great in the magazines. Him coming off the top rope, yep. that one shot, great. But it, when you see him, you know, it's the, the, the phrase all sizzle, no steak comes to mind. It's, you know, and that may be why, you know, when I saw Tiger Mask finally five years later, 
like Tiger Mask to me was what Mil Mascaris he he made good on that promise from the magazine photo. Like Mil Ma- Tiger Mask was doing the stuff that I thought Mil Mascaris was going to do. I well put. I mean, I, I I remember being a kid seeing Mil Mascaris for the first time in 1977, and I had seen him in the magazines. I was very excited to see him live. And I see him in the first match, and not much happens. I'm like, okay, well, it's only one match in. Then we have the next match, and he's just not what he appeared to be in the magazines, which I guess means the magazines did a really good job. Yeah, great job, Bill After. Great job. I mean, the only guy on this list who I would consider to be agile in 1982 besides Tiger Mask is Chavo Guerrero. Yeah, I would, I would probably have Chavo higher on this list, other than the, the one person who voted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's great about Chavo, too, is that yes, he is he is agile, but you know you could almost make an argument for him going on the as a write-in on the scientific wrestlers list. And although you know I'm not going to put him on the breast the, the the best brawler list, he could also he could brawl when needed, which I think adds in a way like having those skills add to the credibility of the flashy agile moves, if that makes any sense. No, it, it totally makes sense. And you're right. Uh, Chavo could do it all. Strongest wrestler. Number well, except get along with everyone. Strongest wrestler. Number <laughs> one, Ken Patera. Number two, Tony Atlas. Number three, Hulk Hogan. Number four, it's a tie between Andre the Giant and Butch Reed. And honorable mention goes to Paul Ellering and Joe LaDuke. John, if you had to vote for strongest wrestler in 1982, who would you go with? I'd probably go with Tony Atlas, just the, in the way he was presented. I loved him as a kid. He was presented as, you know, black Superman, Tony Atlas. You know, mm-hmm. I used they. I can't help but think that along with with Kerry Von Erich, you know, there's so much unrealized potential in Tony Atlas. Yeah. Um, I think about Hogan leaving in 81. They have Atlas beat him in every arena on Hogan's way out. So clearly they think highly of him too. So how far do you think Tony could have gone? I mean, Tony was over like crazy in the early eighties to the point where he wasn't the best worker, but I think they could have gotten like if, if they had put, here's, here's how much I, how, how highly I think of Tony Atlas. If they had put the NWA title on him, I wouldn't have argued with it. I, and I would tell you right now, I don't think that would have been the worst decision. Put the WWF title on him. I think they that would have worked. And it's saying a lot. I mean, I, I think Tony Atlas infamously uh, is one of the participants in the worst match you've ever seen. If I know if I'm. <laughs> yes, he was. Yeah, but that but even saying that, though, like that's how good Tony Atlas was that you could think still think of him as the NWA champion. You know, despite him and Ted RCD like flattening a child in the front row. Uh, yeah, that was crazy. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, there was Tony really took a nosedive after he lost the WWF tag team titles. He left the area for a while. He, he never seemed, even in the middle of a wrestling war, he never seemed to get any traction after that. And I, I just couldn't help but notice. That like he's working, you know, the bottom of the card in the WWF in like '86, again yeah. in the middle of a wrestling war. Like you would think Watts or Crockett could have used him, and it never happened. And you know, we've heard the reasons why it didn't happen. Yeah, 
I personally, you know what? And this is not a knock on Tony. I was a fan on Tony, but even back then, I knew like, look, those are bodybuilder muscles that you have. Those are not strong man muscles. And yep. to me, Ken Patera and Butch Reed, I'm going to put them in a tie for okay. my number one because Butch Reed and Ken Patera looked like there was no limit to what they could bench. There was no limit to what they could curl, et cetera. Yeah, I love uh, uh, Bruce Reed. I always remember the, the image of him after he strips Flair to his underwear, having Flair in the military press, yeah. walking walking from the center of the ring to the ropes and throwing him to the Von Erichs. <laughs> Look, and it was, that it was, was crazy. A great, a great powerful image. Another guy with so much potential that could have been. It, it seems it seems like promoter after promoter wanted to go far with him and it didn't it didn't happen no he's another guy that in 85 86 you could have made a case making him you know the nwa champion we we talked about this when rico coleman was on the show i mean hey why not if you're the nwa have a black world's heavyweight champion have your own michael jordan out there you know representing your band your brand yeah i remember i forget who it was made this point maybe even even been watts talking about this and he's like every other sport the white guys are not necessarily the best guys in the sport anymore so why isn't that the same in wrestling yeah. why don't we have that in wrestling and it's like he could even if he can make watts realize this like says something it, it definitely does uh, you know who was really strong buzz sawyer um I, and this didn't happen in 82 but I, I i think he was you know no less strong when he did this in 86 in Fort Worth, he took one of the Batten twins and put him over his head, and the guy was not helping, and he just pitched him over the top rope with no protection. It was a crazy spot. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Buzz was strong. Best wrestler on interviews. Number one, Roddy Piper. Number two, Jerry Lawler. Number three, Ric Flair. Number four, Terry Funk. Number five, Nick Bockwinkle. And... Honorable mentions go to Jesse Ventura and Dusty Rhodes. Let me start, John, by saying I don't think there is a single guy on this list who doesn't belong on the list. Every single one of these guys is a great interview. Yep. Agreed. Agreed right. 100%. But uh, ultimately, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you, you first. No, I was, I was, I was going to start like, I was going to ask you who your number one was. So I'll tell you what, please say what you're going to say and then tell us who your, who your number one would be. Okay, no, yeah, um, yeah. I was I was gonna go through. Uh, yeah, Piper is near perfect in 1982 with his interviews. He like we were talking earlier, like he's able, you know, when he's talking about uh, the, uh, you know, the Armstrongs, like being able to, you know, start off and and every every interaction, every little mini feud he has, you know, it starts off down the middle. You know, he's calling it fair and square. The conversation starts like a normal conversation and just ever so slowly. You know, he gets a little more biased and a little more snarky, and it's it's perfect. And then when he's babyface, it's 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 great. He's it's a near perfect year for Piper on interviews. I I agree with you. Roddy Piper would be my number one if I had a ballot. Uh, he actually got eighty five points, and Jerry Lawler got forty points. So it's a, mm. a pretty big gap. Uh, Roddy got to show off his skill not only as a heel but then as a babyface, and. I wondered coming in when I saw the turn, I was like, you know, what's this guy going to be like as a babyface? I knew he had been one in Portland, but I kind of, you know, didn't know what was going to happen next. It was almost like, um, 
can Barry Windham turn heel? Like, can he pull it off? Well, the answer in both cases were yes, he could. Roddy Piper was even more effective as a babyface than a heel. And I've always thought that Roddy Piper is one of those guys he's not getting over as a babyface unless he's a heel first. Yeah, and that's that was his formula. Um, you know, he did it from territory, territory to territory until he eventually, you know, did it on on a national level uh, mm-hmm. in '84, and it it worked. He knew how to he knew how to do it, and it didn't. It never stopped working. <laughs> All right. What would be your number two and your number three for best on interviews? I got Flair and then uh, Funk. Okay. Uh, Flair, we sort of already talked about. You know, Flair '82 is where he becomes he becomes Ric Flair of the 1980s. Um, Terry Funk on 19 is always another level. Um, and 1982 is, is no exception. I think they have, that's where they have the footage of him where he's in the street clothes, beating up Bruce walk up on the cage on TV. That was tearing up, and he's just screaming, get up pig, pig, pig. And then he's just screaming and almost crying and blubbering and slamming his face into the cage. And not, he's not slamming it into like the, the mesh part of the cage. He's slamming it into like the huge, you know, not the chain link, like the thick bar part. Yes. Screaming about does It's truly disturbing, you know. And they go back to Gordon. He's just like, oh, just at, at a loss for words. Is Gordon so <laughs> after that? I got to see that for the first time in 1987, and the word oh. disturbing is the perfect word. I mean, you know, I was a little bit smart to the business, and I'm just like looking at this saying, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> yeah, he really came across as someone, even if you, even if Dusty, you were like, oh, Dusty's a better fighter than Terry Funk. You're concerned about Dusty's well-being, getting oh, yeah. into a cage with this obviously deranged person. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is really, <laughs> so I get, I'm getting like chills thinking about it, because it's just so, it's like watching, you know, it's like, Oh, I, I, it's almost like you, you accidentally put on a snuff film or something. You're like, yeah. oh, I'm not supposed to be seeing this. What's happening? <laughs> <sighs> uh, all right. My, my number two and number three, same as The Observer. Jerry Lawler gets my number two. Ric Flair gets my number three. John, do you have a write-in candidate, someone that was not mentioned? I had Hayes as a write-in for this. I thought Hayes, Michael Hayes is an excellent one. I had him, but um, uh, yeah, uh, everybody else, they really, I, I think they nailed it, even with, with the other, other write-ins, but I, I, like, I like Hayes as a write-in. Who do you, who do you have, anybody? Uh, let me see. If, you know what? Hayes might have been mine had I thought of him, and why wouldn't I? Hayes, is one, he's one of those guys, he had like maybe the, one of the best interviews I ever saw after he turned babyface and just talking about like how he got there and telling his little brother you better play your butt off in, in the baseball play. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so he was phenomenal. My write-in is Dutch Mantel. Um, I thought he was so good on the stick. He told a story, and he kept it interesting. He might be in my top five. Wow, that's a good write-in. I like that. All right. Most charismatic wrestler. Number one, it is a tie. 47 points each for Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. 43 points for Roddy Piper, number three. 42 points for Jimmy Snuka, number four. Hulk Hogan is number five with 37 points. So this is all really close. 
honorable mentions go to Tommy Rich, Junkyard Dog, Michael Hayes, and Jerry Lawler. Mm-hmm. John, if you're getting a ballot, by the way, we are now, are we now on the, no, we're not. We're still in the category A awards. John, if oh. you had a vote, who would be your number one? The voting here is weird um, because Rick, Rick Flair tied with Dusty. What's weird to me is Dusty is this high on the most charismatic, but only honorable mention in interviews, which is that's a little bit of a, a head scratcher for me there. Huh. Um, but I would, I'd probably go Dusty because he's Dusty. And like, yeah. even if Dusty's, even if Dusty's matches, you know, and he seems to be slipping in other, other areas, he still has the charisma. So I could, I'll put him at the top. All right. In my opinion, Dusty was starting to slide a little bit in 1982. I mean, he had been one of the biggest stars in the business for like seven or eight years by now. And I'm not, you know, I'm a big Dusty fan when I say his act was starting to get a little bit old. That's not a knock. It was a great act. It's just, you know, every act has its shelf life. My number one would be Hulk Hogan. I mean, this guy, he's six foot eight, billed as such, mountain of muscle who could talk, who could be in movies. I mean, it was obvious to me that Hulk Hogan was going to be huge in this business. However, I didn't think he was going to be huge as a babyface. I kind of thought, all right, when he comes back to the WWF, he might be the bad guy, uh, the hmm. next superstar, Billy Graham, who was the bad guy champion while they build up a new baby face. Obviously, I didn't know that the business was changing. But, I mean, from day <laughs> one, uh, I first saw Hulk Hogan late 1979. And, I mean, the guy, the guy's shown on TV. Yeah. And it's, it's really, and the charisma part, especially in 1982, you could see it as the year goes on. You know, or like at 81, he's still sort of, you know, the promos are still a little awkward the way that he was with Blassie, you know, a little stiff. Um, but by 82, as the year goes on and on, he's he's getting into full Hulkster, let me tell you something mode by the yeah. end of the year. And you can really see that happening in 82 for Hulk. All right. Most over. Did you have any other comments on most charismatic? Like yeah, I would have gone Michael Hayes number two. Yeah. Yeah. I probably have him a little higher. Um, don't, you know, I think, I, I think Snooka, I like, I know Snooka, despite what you could say about his, his work or anything else, I think charisma again with, you know, even though we're voting him, they're voting him as most agile, which might not necessarily be correct. But he had the charisma he had, you know, especially for a guy who couldn't talk. Yeah. Um, like he, I really feel like he got so much out of so little. <laughs> a guy who a guy who can't put together for the most part a coherent interview could still get that reaction without talking. I mean, he would come into the ring and he drop down to one knee and do the "I love you" sign, and the crowd is eating out of his hand. Yeah, um, and I think just getting as far as like getting the most, maximizing what with what he had, like that's that to me is is charisma in in a way. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, in wrestling, sometimes you have to have. You have to have that speaking ability, and Snooker kind of got around that. And it's funny, yeah. you know, the term artificial charisma in wrestling, where you have to have a gaudy robe or a flashy ring jacket. And, you know, a lot of these guys, they had that stuff, like, you know, Michael Hayes, obviously, but they didn't need it. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about one of my favorite terms, or two of my favorite terms overrated and <laughs> underrated. 
I mean, it, it, it's your perception of someone else's perception, and it's a little bit messed up. I'm trying to figure out what this is based on. First of all, I'll read you the list of most overrated wrestler. Uh, number one, Pedro Morales. Number two, Bob Backlund. Number three, Tommy Rich. Number four, Giant Baba. Number five, Dusty Rhodes. And honorable mention, Ivan Putski and Kerry Von Erich. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out how they're determining overrated. Is it like, is it the Joe Rudy Award where they get called overrated, underrated so many times that they become overrated? Or is it that they didn't, like their push exceeds what they should have gotten pushed? I think I'm kind of going for the latter here. Yeah, that's what I had in my notes. It seems like this category almost seems like it should be called either most over pushed or most undeserving of their spot on the card. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good way of looking at it. That's how I sort of read this and uh, in a, when looking at the vote. All right. Well, and one thing uh, before I ask you what your number one is, how the hell did Kerry Von Erich get on this? Yeah, I don't. How I was don't. he underrated? How was he overrated? I don't. And I'm, I'm wondering if it's like, again, uh, is it 1982 smart fans seeing a guy with Kerry's physique? And his maybe his lack of quote unquote scientific wrestling skills, and just thinking like he doesn't deserve that that push that he got for you know most of 1982. Here's my theory. Okay, like do the do the, do the voters think David is underrated? Also, like I don't. <laughs> or overrated? You know, I don't. I don't. I don't. Know. Yeah, I mean, here's my theory. Okay, and Mark Nolte, who was a good friend of mine at one point, is no longer with us. My, th- I know he had a ballot. My theory is Mark was living in South Texas and was just getting a little bit tired of Kerry get, getting that sort of push and said, okay, he's being a little bit overpushed. That That is my theory. Ah, there you go. That was All right. Who, in your opinion, John, is the number one most overrated wrestler of 1982? Spoiler, mine's a write-in. Oh, wow. Uh, mine is probably Giant Baba going by by this list uh again no 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 disrespect i don't mean to be controversial you know in his glory days the guy is super impressive to watch but by 1982 his body is like so thin and weird okay. yeah and especially in contrast to guys like stan hansen and bruiser brody let alone you know the more enhanced guys that would come around i understand the problem where you can't just wave the, the magic wand and say, okay, now Jumbo Saruta is your top guy. It doesn't, it, just, it doesn't just happen. Right. It has to be a slow transfer. I think this year is part of that transfer. You know, and because it's Japan, you just can't have Baba just start jobbing out to guys. I mean, in hindsight, it's easy to say they, they should have started the transfer a, a year earlier, but we don't know when he decided. So, but still, it, it's, I, I think he is, he is, uh, overrated and or overpushed in 1982. All right. That is an excellent presentation. Thank you. My most overrated wrestler. I mean, this guy got a plum spot and that plum spot was that he got to be the wrestler who turned Jimmy Snuka. And I think his feet were a little at this point in his career, his feet were a little bit small for those shoes where obviously I'm talking about Ray Stevens. I, I thought a again it's it's 1982 and he's past his prime and I think someone else a stronger wrestler you know should have gotten that spot as far and you know gotten that run around the horn against Jimmy Snuka it was a a pivotal role 
and I think it should have gone to someone a little bit better, quite frankly. Yeah, and it's weird because they really didn't do anything. They did one match at the Garden, mm-hmm. and that was it. And they never, you know, it, it never. I mean, Snuka Albano was the uh, was, was a few. It wasn't Snuka Stevens. You know, maybe maybe they knew something that we didn't by only doing one and done with Snuka. But you know, who would you have had in that spot? Oh, I, I you know, that's the thing I was thinking about. I don't even know. I mean, I, I, Ray Stevens had been in the WWF before, but. Uh, I mean, he had been gone so long, like that basically doesn't matter. I, I would figure out some heel that I wanted to have a major run. It would have been someone like who ha- just had a major run against Bob Backlund, and then they do this. Ivan Koloff, off the top of my head, would have been good for this spot. Yeah, they'd Koloff and great Koloff. You can even you could even do Adonis or or Orton maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of, a lot of options, but Koloff, I like Koloff the best. Is there anyone most overrated that is not on this on your list, John? That like you would say, oh, let's talk about this guy for a minute. I don't know. The, uh, Putsky's a, a, a weird one because I don't. I, I think he's on one hand. I think he's he's rated right where he's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's he was he was pushed exactly to where he should be pushed. Like I don't think he was over over pushed. I don't think he held a coveted spot in the card. That could have gone to someone else. Um, and he was hugely popular back you know, in the 70s and early 80s. My Polish grandmother loved him. Um, there you go. It was like, you know, it was sort of like a strongbow thing. Someone who is who's not a fan from the Northeast back then sees Putski and is like scratching their head. Like, what is wrong with you guys? But, you know, I don't I don't think he was overpushed or, or overrated. I don't think I'm not saying he was great. I'm not saying he was even very good, but I don't think he was overrated. I don't I don't understand that one really. No. Tyler Judd, friend of mine, former and future guest, would talk about how Jimmy Valiant was very valuable to Mid-Atlantic Wrestling because he could go, you could have a spot show in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and Jimmy would draw, and they would come out to see Jimmy Valiant. Ivan Putski was kind of the Jimmy Valiant of the early 80s WWF. You know, you have a a show at the Elm Street Gym in Nashua, New Hampshire, and Ivan Putsky's on top. You're selling either selling that out or coming close. Yeah, and he's yeah, and and Putsky, like again, I just don't understand the overrated. He doesn't get wins he shouldn't. You know, occasionally he guys on the way out. You know, he'll get a. You know, I think you know, and if anything, I think he could have had a better role. Like I could see '82 uh, being, you know, like. Uh, a Chief J Strongbow 1978 role, like have him be Backlund's gatekeeper, have him be the guy that you know Bob Orton or Adrian Adonis injures before going to Backlund. I think they could have been a better role. Yeah, I agree. I totally underrated. Agree. Ivan puts these underrated and underpushed. There you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, well, two guys I thought were a little bit overrated. Ron Bass got the national heavyweight championship for a couple of months in Atlanta and I just didn't think he was worthy of that role. I you know, not nothing against Bass. He just wasn't a big enough star to be the number one heel on, on WTBS. Is he a babyface for a while in eighty two or am I mixing up my years? Uh he in Georgia he was a heel and I think after he left Georgia he went to Florida as a babyface. And even then I think you know what? He probably got too big a role in Florida as well. Yeah, and I don't I buy him. I don't buy Ron Bass as a babyface. Like he he looks like a cartoon villain. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> he looks like a cartoon of a villain. He shouldn't be a it, It's true. And like I said, you know, God bless Ron. I know he passed away a couple of years ago, and I wouldn't want to bet money against him, you know, on seeing who can bench more because he looked like a bull. But at the same time, I, I thought he was, over, you know, overpushed. Now let's talk about the most underrated wrestler. And again, I'm kind of not getting a lot of these. Number one, Adrian Adonis. Number two, Dynamite Kid. Number three, Bob Orton Jr. Big tie for number four, Larry Zabisco, Butch Reed, Johnny Rods, who got three first place votes, (laughs) and Dos Caras. And then we got a bunch of our honorable mentions, Ron Fuller, Dick Slater, Chick Donovan, Manny Fernandez, Buzz Sawyer, and Animal Higuchi. John, where do I start? Adrian Adonis... (sighs) I, I, I is he underrated by the the average casual fan in 1982? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Okay, I'm buying that. At the same time, this guy did main events, two main events in Madison Square Garden, two main events in Boston Garden, main event in Philly, Baltimore, Pittsburgh. It's not like he's getting not getting pushed. Yeah, yeah. I, it almost seems like it's underappreciated by the mainstream fan, perhaps. I, you know. Yeah, I mean, you could easily brush. You could brush with a pretty broad stroke on most of these these, these votes here. I think of I think of underrated in 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 eighty two. Uh, you know, I think of I think more of like a Mister Olympia, something like that. You no, know, that's a, a guy, good one. A guy who you know, sort of you know, really really good in his role and sort of toiled around for a while. And you, another guy too, uh, and this who I don't really see. And I don't know if he belongs on the underrated list more than just lost in the shuffle in 1982 list. Wahoo McDaniel. Um, That's a good I, one. I don't think you can call him underrated, but it's like, and, and this I blame, I blame my, my, my co-host Al Getz for this, for looking at all these results. But he's in the semi-main or main event everywhere he is, mid-Atlantic, Georgia, Houston, Florida, big, huge feud of slaughter. You know, but he's not on any any of these lists. And again, I don't know if that's maybe he has just fallen from favor of the observer voter in 1982. That might be just be as simple as that. That's possible. Dynamite Kid, was he in strictly in Japan in Calgary in 1982? I don't think he debuted. I'm pretty sure he hadn't debuted in Portland yet. Uh, maybe near the end of 82. I think that's more 83. I mean, he did the, the one off at the Garden with uh, Tiger Mask, but I think that's it. I think Portland is... Uh, is 83. You, you hit it on the head. That's where that came from. The Madison Square Garden match in New York is why he got those votes. You nailed it, sir. Yeah, I guess. I guess. And, <laughs> I, I, and I don't see him. I mean, he's, <laughs> I think he's rated just perfectly by the 1982 Observer voters here. But. Okay. No, that, and you know what? Like in, in 1982, you look at Dynamite Kid and you're like, okay, he's he's really good, but what what do you do with him? You know, he's really small, and do you use him as a babyface as or as a heel or what? But obviously, he figured it out. Yeah. Bob Orton, same argument as Adrian Adonis. Who are we talking about here? He went around the horn on top against Bob Backlund. He had he didn't have two matches anywhere that I know of except for Philadelphia. But he main evented in the Northeast. Uh, Larry Zabisco was an interesting one. Yeah, I had no idea he was wrestling in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to look that up. I was like, where the hell was Larry Zabisco in 1982? Yeah, Larry was on that that same Dominic DiNucci show in Nashua that drew literally, I want to say like 40 fans. They were they were empty 
ringside seats for this show. It was like June 82. It was Zabisco against Bruno Jr. in the main event. And I, I barely remember even anything else about the show. But yeah, Larry was, I mean, he basically didn't have a promotion. He went to work for Bruno, and that was sporadic work. And I think maybe people were just wondering, okay, why doesn't Larry Zabisco have a job? Yeah, and he would he would be show up in Georgia, but that wasn't until 83, correct? It was either, I think it was early 1983. I think uh, New Year's had already, had already come and gone by the time Larry got to to Georgia. Yeah, you know what? He kind of made up for 82 with that push he got in Georgia. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, he did. 80, 80, it's so funny like, talk, like talking about 82 Georgia, and I don't know if 82 Georgia is generally looked at as a, a great year, but I love, I love watching 82 Georgia, and it's amazing how much I enjoy watching 82 Georgia without having like the blow off matches or the big matches on video a lot of the time. Like I'm totally content just watching the 82 Georgia TV. It's great. And it's amazing. And you got, you guys have talked about this on your show. It's amazing how awry things go (laughs) in one year with the promotion, but it is nice to see Johnny, Johnny Rods get a nod on this list. I like seeing Johnny Rods on this list. I got to say that. All right. Here's my question. I, I was always a big Johnny Rods fan. I mean, he was, he had fun matches on TV almost every week. But if we're talking about a push, like, what do you do with Johnny Rods? Like, how do you push him? I, I, I just don't see it at this point. I, he's unpredictable, yet at time right now, he's unpushable in, in my eyes. John, yeah, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. You know, again, I like it. I, I, it's nice that he gets the nod here. I, I enjoy that. Um, it's interesting to me that the WWF has some of the absolute worst preliminary wrestlers that you're ever going to see on a television program while also having guys like Johnny Rods and Jose Estrada who can actually work decent matches. That always fascinated me. I always imagine I would always love to just have see footage of like the backstage area before a a TV taping to see everybody back there. And like, you know, it's that's always boggled my mind about the WWF in the, in the seventies and even up until post-expansion even at some of the TV taping. All right. Now let's talk about Chick Donovan. Nothing against Chick. I've heard he's a really nice guy, really nice guy. But I am convinced that if you're listing him as underrated, you saw a picture of him in a magazine and you're like, wow, this guy has big muscles and blonde hair. Why isn't he getting pushed? Because if you've seen Chick Donovan wrestle or God forbid, if you've seen Chick Donovan do an interview, he is not pushable. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't. I don't get this one at all. I don't get that at all. <laughs> uh, if you have not seen a Chick Donovan interview, well worth seeking out. Manny Fernandez is kind of missing a little bit in 1982. I, I think I've talked about this on the show. I mean, he looked like he had so much promise in Florida in 79 and 80, and I, I know in 82. I'm kind of wondering like where he is. And I think he's in Southwest in central States and uh, his talent is way greater than those, those territories. So I can see Manny being underrated. Yeah. So yeah, especially in, especially in 82 Southwest, the Southwest Southwest has the, has the USA show by 82. Correct. I think so. Yeah. But there's, they're not, they're not as they're not all over yet. And central States is just the, the vacuum. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, 
I got USA. I started watching it on USA Network uh, February-ish, 1983, right around the same time as World Class. I don't know if I just, I don't remember if I just found it on that day or what happened, but I knew, even though it was on national cable and they had a couple of big names, I knew I was watching minor league wrestling or at best a mid-major. Yeah, even as a a child, a single digit age child, I I, <laughs> I could tell that watching. I, another thing that you is so hard to explain to to people today, like be, being you know in 1981, 82, like the the wrestling landscape and what was on was changing so quickly. Like I, I would spend most of the Saturday morning, early afternoon, at the top of the hour, just switching through, clicking through the channels, just seeing in case wrestling showed up on the channel because like oh. Here's this financial news network slash sports network, FNN score. Oh, there's wrestling on this now. Crazy. And then, <laughs> then and it'd be gone in a month and it'd be on some other. It's just, you know, it was, it was a fun time. Oh, I, I, I've told the story before. I mean, I used to have a cable box. I'm trying to think of, of what the, what I can compare the cable box that we first got to, but you put your hand on it and you move this dial and you, that's how you change the channel. Yep. And every half an hour, when we first got that cable box in, in February, 1980, I was like checking every channel to see if there was wrestling on. And I was really disappointed. They're they just at that time. There was not a lot of wrestling on. We didn't have WTBS yet. If we had USA network, it wasn't on there. There was just like this, one, we got like one extra hour of wrestling to start with. But anyway, one other thing, uh, most underrated wrestler, Buzz Sawyer gets votes. I mean, what else did they want George to do with Buzz Sawyer? I, I think they I pushed him as hard as he could be pushed. Yeah, he was there. He was the he had the national title, didn't he? In 80, uh, yes, 82? he did. Yeah. So that's what, what more could you have? And George. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just like, wow. I mean, this guy is being pushed as a lead heel on national television what else do you want all right now we're getting to we're actually getting near the end here we have let me see what dave calls the category b awards and that is just first place votes that's it match of the year number one rick flair oh it's it's a tie excuse me and i can tell you i can tell the difference between the people who actually voted for matches that they saw and voted for matches that they thought were going to be matches of the year. <laughs> Ric Flair versus Bob Backlund is tied with Tiger Mask versus Dynamite Kid, the August 5th version of it, for number one. John, I've said this on the show before, I have heard that Flair versus Backlund was awful. As a matter of fact, Backlund kind of backed that one up in his book. Yeah, I just, I have, I have Backlund's, Backlund's notes about the match in my notes, but you're already on them, but it's, it's, Flair even says the same thing in his book. He doesn't go into as much detail, you know, but he says he, you know, he respects Bob as an athlete, blah, 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 but the WWF title meant nothing in Atlanta, just as the NWA title meant nothing in New York. Those are Flair, Flair's words, not mine. Um, yeah. And, and back then, which I don't buy because Flair came to New York with the NWA title 10 years later. Backlund tells a little bit of a different story um, about, how usually before one of these unification matches, he'd meet the promoter and they talk about the match and the finish, which didn't happen this night. So he calls Vince senior in, in sort of a panic feeling, like, what is going on? No one's talked to me. Vince is like, hold on, be cool. And he says like, he thinks something is fishy because, you know, he's worried about a double cross and then Barnett smooths it over. So they just end up doing like a, 
a double count out or something, but it's, yeah. he was worried about a double cross and, you know, for, for Bob Backlund to say it wasn't a great match because both of those guys had something in the back of their mind. So they didn't let the other guy get a two count. They're kicking out of one counts all night. Yeah. Um, so it lacked that drama because n- neither guy really wanted to take it to that, that next level. I have never been to Atlanta, but I cannot help but think that the WWF title had to mean something there because the WOR show is now close to nationwide on cable. I mean, yeah. unless Atlanta didn't get it or nowhere around Atlanta got it. I mean, it had to, it had to mean something. Yeah, I would imagine. And Backlund did, you know, occasionally come in and just do, do a TV match on, on TBS. That, that is correct. As a matter of fact, you're right. He had been on TBS before. Not right, often. Number, like, number three is Bob Backlund versus Jimmy Snuka in the cage match. And then we have honorable mention, Bob Backlund versus Adrian Adonis, January 30th. Once again, we can tell the people who actually have seen the matches. Buddy Rose versus Dr. D. David Schultz in a chain match from Portland. I've seen that match, and I wouldn't even, I mean, it's not, nothing wrong with it, but I don't think it's number four match of the year. John, have you seen that match? I have not. I was looking for this match when I was going through this list, and I could find, I found a cage match, but I, I could not find the chain match. Yeah. How is the chain match? It, it's really good. I just wouldn't give it match of the year consideration. Then again, it only takes one person to vote for yeah, this, an honorable mention, so that's probably what happened. Uh, number, let me see, also my honorable mention, Flair versus Steamboat, uh, February 7th from Greensboro, and Flair versus Hansen. 10-3 from Atlanta. John, what would you say is match of the year 1982? For me personally, again, I hate to be controversial. Like, I'm taking back on the Donis and MSG. That was a good match. I love that match. And I know it sounds ridiculous to put this over Backlund, Snuka, and over, probably sacrilege to put it over a Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask match, but just my, my personal preference. I think this is such a good match. And it really, you can watch this one match and just see how how good Backlund and Adonis were in 1982. You don't need to sift through a laundry list of matches. Just watch this 30-minute match. Adonis up and all over the ring, and he's a, a, a perfect opponent for Backlund. I mean, that's my one my one criticism of Backlund is, and it's a, it's a, it's a harsh criticism, but he, he can't get a good match out of everyone. No, um, that's true. But he's able to go move for move with Backlund, um, and a lot of Backlund's other opponents cannot go move for move with Backlund. And they have a really good chemistry. Backlund nailed Adonis with this pile driver that's just, ugh. It's oh, like yeah. Brutal. I remember and, that. <laughs> and even though the match is like a, a like a blood stoppage loss, a ringside doctor coming in and waving his arms around, I don't even, I don't even think the inconclusive finish hurts this match at all. I love it, and it, I think it's probably Backlund's best match of the year and uh, I was torn between my personal this putting this putting this on my personal number two or number one but I'm putting this on my number one now and like also we talked about for also a lumberjack match from the cap center in March that is also really good that was an excellent match um I'm gonna, I'm gonna split mine into two different categories and John I'd like Oops. you to do my my second category when I'm done best match of the year in my opinion was Ric Flair versus Kerry von Erich um hmm. It was August of 1982, and they had a five-star match that was nothing short of incredible. That was the, again, in-the-ring best match. As far as match of the year, the biggest match of the year, 
once again, we're going Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich, but this time on Christmas night. Now, no one listed that, and I have the feeling that it's because, you know, by the time the news broke of what happened, like the, the deadline to get the ballot in was, was over. But, I mean, I think that was the biggest match huh. of 1982. Could have been the biggest match of the decade. I mean, what, what, so what would you think, John, along those lines, as far as, like, you know, Ric Flair versus Bob Backlund, obviously a huge match. The cage match was a huge match. Which one, on, based on that criteria, would you go number one? Yeah, you know, when you when you when you put it that way, you gotta thinking about what you just said. You know, I, I have to put Carrie Flair from Christmas Night on that list, uh, or number one, almost. Hmm. You made a really really good point with both of those matches, just because when you I, I I you know sort of embarrassingly just based on that match when thinking about all these other matches on the list. But yeah, oh, that, I mean, that, between that match, the two of us, we forgot about something very important. I'm sure that's going to get pointed out to us. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But it's, you know, 1982 is such a crazy year. Yeah. And that when you talk about implications further down the line for wrestling, that 1982 cage match is incredible. Like it just, it sets up the next three or four years of those guys' careers. Yeah. All of them, all of them. I have to have that higher on my list now that I, so yeah, agree. I agree with you on that. I mean, you know, if, if that match never happens, uh, I mean, seriously, Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams against the Von Erichs never happens. I mean, because that got the promotion rolling. Yeah. There's so many. Yeah. And yeah, again, not even implications beyond those individual guys, just the entire promotion. Like that whole, the, the promotion was on the shoulders of those guys that night, you know, and they, they were able to carry it. Yeah, I mean, they spent the entire year building up to that match where, you know, Ric Flair is not going to get away with any shenanigans in this cage and Michael Hayes is going to make sure. And yeah, Michael Michael Hayes made sure, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Rookie of the year. We have two names, Steve Williams and Mike Rotundo. I, I want to make this point. If Steve Williams had stopped wrestling in, let's say, I don't know, April 1983, if that was his short career, he would have gone down as one of the worst wrestlers of all time. I mean, he was awful in 82. But the point is, well, he got better. We all know that. But we're back to talking about Angelo Mosca Jr. He got out of the business early. And if he didn't, I'm not saying he would have turned into Steve Williams, but he would have gotten better. I think the same thing of Mike Von Erich. Who do you think Rookie of the Year at 1982 should have been, John? I, I still say Steve Williams, by the way, because he got a no, nice push. He did. And I think uh, not to I'm going to take up for him a little bit here. And I uh, yeah, very he's very awkward mm-hmm. at first. Very awkward at first. Um, and he, he never became what you would call graceful. But I feel like even early on, he sort of, you know, makes up for that with with intensity. Um, I, I have to give that to him. He makes up for it with intensity. You never feel like he's going through the motions. He may not be going through the right motion, <laughs> but he's always 100% on for, for better or worse. Um, my, my votes, I have a write-in um, also. I, 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 I would put Rotundo ahead of him, and I'd throw Billy Jack. Billy Jack is mine. Throw him in there, too. I like Rotundo, and R- Rotundo is almost the polar opposite of Steve Williams. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean it an exceptional in-ring worker almost right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dory. Dory Jr. takes him under his wing in mid-Atlantic, Rotundo, and I think Rotundo gets some clean wins over Dory. In, in fact, so Dory clearly 
is 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 into the uh, the mentor thing with Rotundo, but you don't get that intensity from Mike Rotundo. Like he's not going to be the guy talking you into the building. Any anybody else on your list? Or how do you feel about uh, Billy Jack? I'm curious about Billy, Billy Jack, Jack is my number one. I mean, he, you know, he didn't get any first. Well, there were only first place votes, but I remember seeing pictures of him in magazines, being like, okay, maybe we've got something here. And when I finally got around to seeing the Portland uh, 1982, you know, he had just started and he certainly had something. He had charisma. And by, you know, mid 84, he's in Florida getting a huge push. Yeah. He's another guy, too, when you think about potential and like where what could have happened for Billy. Oh, I mean, he, you know, he blew so many big pushes. He was getting a big push in the wwf when he left at the end of 84 he was getting a big push in crockett when he left january 1986 yeah i mean steve williams you know like i said as as bad as he was you know sometimes you gotta be patient with these guys i mean here's a guy who's athletic enough to be i believe a two-time legitimately all-american guard at uh all not all-american all big eight guard at oklahoma so he's an athlete He's a big guy. Sometimes you gotta just be patient and wait for these guys to put it together. Yeah. And they were they were patient. And he did. Hardest worker in the yeah. ring. Number one, a tie, Ric Flair and Tiger Mask, and Dynamite Kid gets the next three votes. John, who do you take? This is another category that's a little weird for me. Like I'm not hundred percent sure what it means based on the the vote. The, yeah. the guys who get the votes. Um I I I agree with all of them. I would put I would put Dynamite Kid higher than Tiger Mask. I don't know if the hardest worker or most most reckless. Yeah. Um, I would actually probably write in Adrian Adonis on this list too, just because of his the insane his his bumping ability, as it were. I, I don't know if that qualifies him as a as a hard worker in the ring, but I would I would throw him on that list too, just because of his. I mean, yeah, you talked about him getting a good match out of. Andre the Giant. What could be harder work than that? Yeah, really. <laughs> I agree with Ric Flair. And I will say why. I mean, he worked an insane amount of dates. And he, you know, his matches went, I mean, he went 60 minutes pretty regularly. I'm not saying every yeah. night, like some people exaggerate. But, I mean, is there such a thing in 1982 as a Ric Flair non-television match that goes less than a half an hour? I mean, maybe, but I bet it's it's a rarity, and that's that's why I'm ultimately going with Ric Flair. Yeah, he's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's when we were going through prepping for looking at these lists, I was looking at his schedule for '82, and it's like you said, it's insane, absolutely yeah. insane. Like it looks like I had to. I actually referenced like I saw some of the dates, and I was like, it seems like it would be physically impossible. So I'm looking up newspapers.com. Seeing, I'm like, oh, it's got the results in the paper, so I guess it happened. I don't know how he did this and made it out of the year alive. Yeah, but he did. He did. Uh, so, yeah. And you know, Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk both wanted out of that schedule, and yeah. Ric Flair got an even tougher schedule than Jack and Terry. But anyway, biggest shock of 1982. Uh, number one, 16 of the votes had Otto Vons winning the AWA title. <laughs> Number two is Ted DiBiase turns villain. And number three is a weird one. Jody Arnold pins superstar Billy Graham in Phoenix. 
okay, uh, you know, for all 300 people that saw that, I yeah. John, what do you make of that? Uh, yeah, that was, I had to look this one up. And I, yeah, I, I had to look that up because I had no idea. Arizona wrestling is such a weird blind spot. You know, yeah. I don't, so I had to do a little research, but he was apparently a mainstay of Arizona wrestling through the territorial era. Didn't venture out very often. It's probably why I had to look this up, you know, but before, apparently before uh, Superstar was coming back to the WWF, he mm-hmm. was looking for to shake off a little ring rust. So he had some matches with Jody and apparently he liked Jody so much. They put him over, even had Jody put him, pin him clean in a match with Phoenix. I mean, I, I know who Jody Arnold is because I would take deep dives into the Kiter magazines and the ring wrestling. And, uh, you know, he would occasionally, occasionally meaning like probably once total would have a picture of Jody Arnold. And it's like, hey, he's the, the big star in this nothing promotion in Phoenix. John, in your opinion, what was the biggest shock of 1982? I got to go with DiBiase, DiBiase turn. Uh, uh, that was a big one. Yeah, that, that, and we, we talked about most of my notes here have already been, been mentioned by other myself or you, but the, it's, the turn is great. And like I said, the, the, his, his heel work borders on frightening, not a cartoon heel, not a, not a Ron Bass heel. <laughs> he seems like a genuinely evil dude who wants to do physical emotional, any kind of damage he can to you. <laughs> All right. My number one, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to split my number one up. We already talked about the cage match in Dallas. That's definitely the biggest shock that the Freebirds come to Dallas and cost Kerry Von Erich the NWA title. I think uh, DiBiase would be my number two. But almost from a different perspective, I remember watching this on, you know, Saturday at 6.05, you know, the WTBS show. Billy Anderson comes out and he starts talking about the Samoans and how they left Georgia Championship Wrestling because they're afraid of Tommy Rich and Paul Orndorff. And mm. he says, wherever they went, the wrestling must not be very good there. And mm. I'm, I have no idea what's going on, but I knew the Samoans were back in the WWF. <laughs> it's going on here. And that was just kind of a glimpse of what the future of wrestling was going to be. Yeah, that's I had a write-in. I had Vince Jr. buying the WWF. Like that—that that was a shock that I probably, no one probably actually knew at the time. Yeah. Now that that one, yeah. I mean, I wonder if people looked at that and said, "Oh, I, I what 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 does the future hold with this guy now in charge of the New York-based WWF that has national cable?" Yeah. What did you think about the Otto Otto Bonds win? I, I, I did. I remember like seeing it in the magazines and kind of not understanding it, but it, I, I'll tell you what, it made the AWA look a little more major league because, you know, all I knew about Otto Vons once again was what I read in the Kaiser magazines, but he seemed like a big deal. And if the guy from Germany, who's a huge star over there, uh, is winning the AWA title, like in my eyes, it made the AWA title look more major league. Yeah, that's. In my notes, I have, yeah, at the time, I thought it was kind of cool that a guy from Austria won the title. So now we have, Austria, you're right. Or is that, did, I, did, I, did I say the wrong? What did I, I said Germany. Oh, you might be right. But I was like, oh, now we have a true world championship. This guy's from yeah. Austria. I, you know, and you look back at him now, you know, he makes King Kong Bundy look like Tiger Mask. But, you know, when you watch the match, the crowd goes nuts. They're going crazy. That said, they probably... 
could have put the title on anyone <laughs> and gotten similar reaction because of how much everybody hated Bockwinkle and, and Heenan. You know, people are saying it's not, you know, it's not believable as, as an ADLP champion, Otto Bonds. But is he is he less believable than Vern Gagne a year ago or a year or two early, you know? No, absolutely I don't not. Know. But you can't help. On the other hand, you're thinking, oh, this must be demoralizing for Hogan to think about. If not, it's time a year later when he's angling for that position himself. Yeah, I mean, supposedly Otto Vons threw a lot of money at Vern for the title win. So, if, I mean, if, if that's the case and Hogan knows about that, he, he shouldn't be too upset. But anyway, best pro wrestling announcer. Uh, number one with 11 votes is Gordon Soley. Tied for number two, Frank Bonima of the Oregon promotion, uh, number f- uh, with five votes. Gene Okerlund getting five votes. Honorable mention, Lance Russell, Vince McMahon Jr., and Mark Nolte. And I will say this. I have seen Mark do commentary. He's very good, but no one knew who he was in 1982. So this is either he voting for himself <laughs> or one of his friends doing him a favor. He was a good announcer. Yeah, I, I mean, he seems like a a wonderful person too. From all everything I've read from him over the years, but again, I don't see how I don't see why he's on this list in 1982. But now we know. Yeah, most of these, some of them are a little confusing. I don't want to be controversial uh, again, uh, but I'm going to be maybe. I don't think Gene Okerlund is good as is is good as a quote unquote announcer. No, uh, as as in a color slash pay play by play guy. I like him as an interviewer. He's great in that role i don't care for him that much as an announcer i don't see how he's tied for number two and lance russell gets honorable mention <laughs> you, you stole <laughs> from me i have a list in front of me that says gene okerlin is better at something than lance russell yeah. good lord yeah i don't understand that um, who would be your number one i i'm still going with solely in 1982 okay I don't know how he ends up on the most obnoxious list and at the top of this list, which is, is strange to me. But looking at it through 1982 eyes, uh, he just he seemed like a legitimate sports announcer. You know, he had a, a gravitas that like uh, like Vince Scully, you know, like he commanded yeah. your attention that he's my vote for number one. All right. Well, my number one. And let me say something nice about Frank Bonima, too. I mean, I remember when I first started getting Portland tapes. I'm like, okay, this guys he's really good, and I have no idea who he is. I don't know his name because that's how focused he kept everything yeah. on the product. Uh, so, you know, he did a really good job. Lance Russell is amazing, in my opinion. Lance yeah. gets a lot of credit for being good on interviews and keeping the show going. But when you give Lance Russell a really good match, like the Jerry Lawler versus Nick Bockwinkle match, from 82, which is a match of the year candidate. I mean, Lance really shines. He was a really good announcer, and he might have been at his peak in 1982. Gordon was still very good, so he would probably be my number two, but I'm going Lance all the way. Yeah, it's so hard when you you, you listen or read people arguing Lance versus is Gordon. Who is better? Like, I don't, I, I, you can't argue that because with both of these guys, or even you know Frank Bonema in uh, Portland, it's who complements the wrestling best in that territory. Like Gordon Soley's not going to work in Memphis. No, and I can't. I can't see Lance working for Eddie Graham in Florida, and I can't see Frank Bonema calling a card at MSG. 
No, and I can't see Vince McMahon calling Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. They all, you know, those guys all work, you know, and going back to Frank Bonomo, like he, you know, he's he's the Gordon Soli or Lance Russell of Portland. Um, like when we were talking about the Schultz, Schultz Buddy Rose chain match, like I ended up watching the, the cage match and he's making a huge deal about how this is the first cage match ever in, you know, the 30 years of Portland wrestling that there has been a cage match on TV. It's really bloody. That's why we don't really usually show them on TV. We usually, <laughs> we usually have them on Tuesday nights where there's no TV. And again, to your point, like he, you don't even know his name and because he puts the attention on the product. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they're supposed to do. And again, with, with Vince, I'm probably in the minority, but I liked Vince on commentary up until 84 or so. Love him calling old MSG cards solo doing his little Howard Cosell thing, just laying back and not saying things for a minute or two at a time. It's great. And it's so different from post expansion Vince during Saturday night's main event or the TV tapings then, you know, he's, there's no like Andre, that giant has been raped of his dignity. There's none of that. <laughs> there's none of that in 1982. You know, he's just doing no. the, a straight sportscaster or sort of, sort of thing. Yeah. He, he didn't start getting wacky until 1984. And now, finally, we have our our final award, most disgusting occurrence of 1982. <laughs> now we're getting a little bit weird here. Uh, number oh, yeah. one with nine votes. This is a disgusting occurrence, ladies and gentlemen. Bob Backlund keeping the WWF belt. Last I checked, Bob Backlund was still doing well at the gate. He was past his peak as WWF champion. I, you know, I and the people I knew who watched wrestling were getting a little bit tired of Bob Backlund. It had been five years, but I mean, most disgusting occurrence. I don't know what to say here, John. Yeah, no, I, and I don't have the, I don't have the, well, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, but I believe in 1982, Bob Backlund beats Buddy Rogers' record, a record that Bruno didn't even hold, a record for the most gates with a attendance over 10,000 people in one year, oh, man. Uh, which says a lot, you know, because during the, those expansions, the early expansion years, you know, Backlund broke that record in 1982. So it's a huge gate year for Backlund, huge gate. And I, I don't mind Backlund having the belt through 82. I think you could have booked him differently and booked other guys differently to keep him looking stronger and to have people not voting for him in this category, you know, don't have the thing with the belt where he's crying on TV. Uh, you could do, book him in snooker in a better way or have it. I don't know. There's, there's ways to go about it where he seems stronger. Isn't looked at in, in the way he, he is. I think that's, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's disgusting. And I think it's, <laughs> I, I don't mind him having the belt. I think there's things, little tweaks they could have done here and there that could have helped, but not disgusting. No, I mean, this is a classic case of not fixing what's not broken. And you, no one can say, well, I, I credit Jimmy Snuka for the WWF having a strong 1982. It's like, look, he didn't turn mm -hmm. until like October. Okay, second in most disgusting occurrence. <laughs> I didn't even know about this. A Louisville Battle Royal with four girls involved yeah. got five votes. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, found, I found the card. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can I can post it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's from Louisville Gardens, Tuesday, September twenty eighth, nineteen eighty two. 
Uh, main event, Southern Tag Team title match, Sweet, ba- Sweet Brown Sugar and Bobby Eaton with Jimmy Hart versus Bill Dundee and Terry Taylor. Uh, Kamala 1 and Kamala 2 with Jimmy Hart versus uh, Lawler and Mantell. Steve Regal versus Rick the Dog McGraw. Oh, uh, uh, Velvet McIntyre versus Sherry Martell. Spike Huber versus Carl Fergie. Leilani Kai versus Vivia St. John. Plus a 17 men and ladies battle royal. So using everyone on the card plus Jimmy Hart. I think that makes 17 people. All right, that makes sense. And my how times have changed. Uh, to say the least, I'm just surprised. I mean, this must have been a huge deal in the newsletter circle in 1982 to get five votes. Oh, yeah. Ah. Number three was Bob Backlund beating Jimmy Snuka. Tied, all these got three. The Lawler-Andy Kaufman incident. Not sure why that's disgusting. And the Jimmy snuka Luel Bano incident. John, do you have a most disgusting occurrence of 1982 in wrestling? You know, I, I don't. You know, like in the Observer voting, people abstain from voting for certain categories because they're, they're not up on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably abstain for this. Abstain from this. Because I, I don't I don't have a disgusting I don't have a disgusting occurrence, honestly. Backlund beating Snuka. I don't understand how that's disgusting. Who does it hurt? Um, yeah. Why is it disgusting? Snuka is hotter than ever before after he gets beat. What is the other option? Like, did people want Snuka as WWF champion? Mm, I mean, um, knowing what we know now. Yeah. Um, and the Lawler. I want to talk to you about Lawler Kaufman. Like, how how was this viewed? Then, like, did smart fans hate it? Because in, in this very issue of the Observer that we're looking at, Dave himself is questioning whether or not this angle was legitimate. And he says that Kaufman really did suffer a neck injury and that there are hostile reports to prove it. Um, and if the incident in Memphis was real, then the incident on The Letterman Show was likely just as real. Um, it, it, so are these, what are these votes referring to? Uh, is it the, you know, is it referring to the incident itself or the work promotion thereof uh, it's very interesting well, how did how did you see this incident then? Well, all right you know what what you said is makes sense that maybe people thought that this big you know big for a regular guy jerry lawler legitimately injured this little comedian andy kaufman over god you know he really hurt him i mean and lawler laid into him on the letterman yeah. show like yeah, yeah and andy said let him you know let me have it yeah. And so maybe that's what they're talking about. So if that's where they're coming from, I guess, okay. But guess what, guys? It was a work. I Now, I racked my brain on this one, right? I said to myself, I can think of all kinds of disgusting stuff from 81, 83, of course, 84. I've got a couple from 80. I couldn't think. I'm like, what happened in 1982 that was actually disgusting? And I, I came up with something. Oh, they did it now. Leroy Brown is in Georgia. He is no longer bad, bad Leroy Brown from Chicago, which I was used to. He's now like this farmer Leroy Brown character out there in overalls. Oh. And he does this angle with Ric Flair where, of course, it's 1982 and Flair's there. So it's got to get racist. And it wound up with, I think, John Studd 
holding Brown while Flair put a chauffeur's cap on Leroy Brown's head. So oh. that popped into my head today, and God damn it, that's disgusting. That is correct. Correct. There we go. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Well, that concludes this episode that I have so been looking forward to. But before we go, John, you got to tell us once again about your new podcast. Oh, yes. It is Charting the Territories, the podcast. You can go find Al's website where he lists his results, chartingtheterritories.com. You can find our podcast at chartingthepodcast.com. Find me on Twitter at John underscore Boucher. Find Al at Al Gets Wrestling. And our podcast is scheduled to come out the last Thursday of every month. So it's only once a month a commitment. All right. So I believe that means that it'll be com- will be coming out simultaneously, which I you wanted to oh. avoid. Ah, we're buddies. <laughs> All right. So anyway, John, thank you so much for taking the time. I was really looking forward to this show and it exceeded my expectations. Oh, good. Yeah. I had so much fun. I love 1982. It was a special year for me, and this this was a, a great great to talk about it with you. Why was this a special year for you? It was my my first full year watching professional wrestling. Oh, that's it, right. That's 82. right. Started in late 81, but 82 was the first full calendar year. So I I hold it near and dear to my heart. And there's a lot going on. Like when you when you think about the the, the decade of you know decades technically start at 1970, 1980, 1990. But a lot of times stuff happens and it's it's almost like 80s wrestling as we think of 80s wrestling as a whole really starts happening in 1982. 1980, you know, you look like the showdown at Shea match. That's sort of like a 70s wrestling card. 1982 is actually where I think 1980s wrestling starts. Oh, all right. That totally makes sense. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the grass. This concludes our podcast day.